You can be turning to Psalm number three. Psalm number three. We have, if you've been around um, these Sunday mornings for the last two or three years, we, we keep going back to Psalm three. We've been there many times, but every time we go back, it's because there's some something there that needs to be said that wasn't said last time. And it's a, it's a very rich psalm. It was written toward the end of David's life at probably his very worst moment uh, to think that David even talks like he talks in this psalm. Uh, is is amazing when you know who he has been you have to say what has happened to you David but then he rises to maybe the greatest heights and and so it's a psalm of very deep valleys and very high mountains and that's why we keep going back to it and so psalm 3 I'm going to read part of it just for the sake of time It begins, O Lord, and notice that the Lord is in capitals, which means actually it should have been translated I am. The I am, Yahweh, is the Hebrew there. O I am, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no deliverance for him in God. But thou, O I am, art a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. And we'll do the other verses as we come to them. But that's the the essence of the psalm right there. I say it was his, his lowest point. It was... Um, well, let me go all the way back. Just before this, I mean, just in terms of history, um, you, you have the sordid affair that David had with Bathsheba. And I say sordid, it was not merely an affair. You know, he arranged for the removal of uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And it becomes one of the most horrible the most sordid events in the Old Testament. And David had certainly received forgiveness. In fact, it seems as you read Psalm 51 uh, and, and Psalm 32 that he's almost reached forward into the new covenant. He speaks of a forgiveness that they didn't really realize in the Old Testament. And it was total, but... That was between David and God. People have tongues. And especially the people in the palace, it was before the days of cell phones, before Zoom. And so you relied on gossip. And that's that's worse yet. And so it was on the streets. People talked. David's not the man he used to be. And can you imagine what he did? And you know the kind of thing. And um, that was in the background, but it's been going on now ever since it happened in the taverns, around fires as people talked. It was there. But also David, 
had a very dysfunctional family. Very. He was the cause of it. He was very remote from his children. And there was one horrible event. This, this, this is getting a sordid story. Um, but it was. It was a horrible event. Um, one of his sons, Amnon, uh, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Well, Tamar was the full sister of Absalom. And so Absalom got infuriated at his half-brother Amnon and looked to David to do something and make it right. And David instead ignored the whole affair. And Absalom received a, a, a bitter spirit toward David that didn't quit. Absalom began to subtly win the hearts of people. He was a snaky kind of guy. Uh, he would stand outside the courthouse, and when people came out, having received a negative word from David, Absalom would put his arms around their shoulder and say, you know, I'm just a prince here. I can't do much. But if I was king, oh, you wouldn't dream what would happen. And so he built the confidence of the people. And again, the rumors and the gossip started now by Absalom and by those who believed it was time for a change. You could keep going on. Wherever you went, it was now open on the streets. Gossip, rumors everywhere. David's not what he used to be. David's an old man now. It's time he left. He's no longer the kid who slew Goliath, it's time for a change. And then even among his closest circle of friends, uh, they, they turned, some of them turned to Absalom. Not that David knew about it, but they turned. This is getting bad. And it got really bad when David began to believe what he heard. Now, that's, that's the issue here. David began to believe what they were saying. And all the pressures that are building, what he calls distresses, and everything that stands in his pathway now, it's, it's overwhelming. It's get, we would say today it's getting to him. And there's an overwhelmingness about it. And right in the middle of all that, Absalom declares himself king, has a coronation and is marching on Jerusalem and his bitterness has risen to its full he wants to get rid of his father take the place and when David hears that he essentially falls apart uh, the story that he's heard all the people repeating and the gossip and the rumors and the half-truths it, it's gotten to him but now if Absalom is marching on the city, it's over. He, got, he just falls apart. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which was the ancient Jewish way of saying, I'm a dead man or I'm, I'm mourning the greatest loss of my life. And he goes out of the city just with as a refugee, enough things to live. He goes with his private bodyguard, which seems still to be with him. But as they cross over the bridge to Mount of Olives, there's another one of Absalom's people throwing stones at him. And the bodyguard says, we go get him. 
And David says, no. And this tells me how low he's fallen. He says, maybe God told him to stone me. What has happened to this man? He's in sackcloth. He's in ashes. He believes God has authorized people to stone him. And he goes, it's interesting, in a thousand years from when David stood there, that area would become known as the Garden of Gethsemane and the crushing wine press. And um, for, for sure, um, David was being crushed. And he goes up the mountain, and when he gets to the top and he turns around, he looks over the whole city of Jerusalem as if in a farewell. But instead he sits there and writes this psalm. This psalm was written immediately after he fled the city from Absalom. There's a number of psalms that belong to this period in David's life, but this was the first one, and he's he's looking back over the city, and he begins, we just read the words, O Lord, I am, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, notice not merely of me, he's saying they're saying it of my soul, my, my very being, there's no deliverance for him in God. It's interesting, the word deliverance there, if we actually just left it in the Hebrew, it's the word is Jesus. Um, he, it, it's a foretaste of salvation that will come in Jesus. And that, that's the, the death. There's no, there's no hope. There's no deliverance. There's no salvation left for this man. He's at the bottom of the pit. He's repeating... As, as his own thought process, he's repeating what the people are saying. That, that's what the, <clears throat> the people are saying this. That he's saying it as his observation. This is very important that you get what I'm saying here. That he's not merely saying it. This is what all the people have been saying. This is their rumors. This is their gossip. When, when they say that they're... Um, adversaries, which is a, a word, it would mean like a, an attorney, uh, an accusing attorney, that it's as if they put David on trial, that they've, they've put him out there as um, someone that is now being publicly, criminally accused. And he uses the same word, and they're, they're rising up, and the people are saying there's so much happening in David's life, God could never be with him. No, no, no. That's over. God's abandoned him. And there is no deliverance, no salvation left for him. That's what the people were saying. David is now saying it as if it's his own observation. He's repeating their story. This is so important because... We so often, uh, we are sucked in to the darkness of what other people are saying. Okay, there's a, a verse which really demands an, all, an hour by itself, but it's Isaiah 8 and verse 11. And I, they, they were having trouble in the city big time. Um, they, they were terrified. It was all if this happens, if that happens. And he says, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow 
the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. Not, not all these rumors. There's only one that you listen to. He is the one you are to fear, which is the Old Testament use of the word, and it means to stand in awe and worship. So they were worshiping, standing in awe of every rumor and negative idea. And the Lord says, no, I'm the only one that you, you have that reverence for. And it says, he will be your sanctuary. Isaiah had picked up, picked it up into his own spirit, the, the despair and the fear of the people, and it was now becoming his own. Though really it was their story, but he was accepting it and becoming one with it. And he, he's, that points out something you would never realize. I was in Moscow once before the wall came down, and um, it is it's the most sad, it's worse than sad, it's a city of depression. And, and the people line up outside of blank doors, four or five across for nearly two miles because they've heard a rumor there's food out behind that door. And there many times there's only enough for a hundred people. And um, they stood there. And we, I would walk down the street and look at them. They were like robots just staring. And, and when the guy came out and opened the door, they went in and just grabbed whatever and, and paid for it, of course. And they came out, and then the guy came out and says, no more. And nobody complained. They just turned around like robots in utter despair that could not be made worse or better. It was just their state. And... As I was walking to my hotel, I felt despair. I felt utter, utter depression. I, I felt, I won't say suicidal, that would take it too far, but I mean, I'd never felt such darkness. And in my hotel room, I was saying, what, what's the matter with me? What, what's happened? And I realized I had picked up the spirit of despair and darkness on the streets. And as soon as I realized that, this particular scripture came very much alive. No, I, I, I am not part of that. Um, my, my whole response is to the God of light and, and so on. But it, it's a reality. And it's happening so much here in the States right now that we are picking up other people's feelings and we think they're our own, and they're not. They will be if we accept them, but they're coming. And this is what David was doing. Um, he has picked up what's happening in the city and has forgotten who he is. And therefore he says, God has abandoned me. Why would he say that? Because he believed what the people were saying, that there's no hope for him, there's no salvation for him. And so, yeah, maybe God says, stone me. That's it. He, he'd accepted the darkness, you see. And um, in Young's literal translation, which I keep telling you to get, um, he, he puts it, how have my distresses multiplied? Many are rising up against me. The word distress, which is the exact Hebrew word there, um, 
It's a very strong word in the Old Testament. Let me give you what it means. Distresses, it means a narrow and very tight place. You could say it's a canyon that you're walking through and your shoulders are touching both sides. But as you keep walking, it's getting narrower and narrower so you can hardly move. There's certainly no room to turn around. That really is the exact meaning of the word. It's a narrow canyon that becomes tighter and tighter. Your shoulders are touching. There's nowhere to turn. I can't get out. And that produces a paralysis of the mind. You know, you just can't think. I I don't know where to turn. Um, It also produces panic. I can't turn around. I can't get out of here. I'm stuck. And and so there's fear in the word. There's anguish, anxiety. It's translated once in the scripture, which tells me sometimes what it really means, um, as having a pebble in your shoe but you can't get the shoe off. And it's, it's, it's there. You can't take a step without it's there. And that's, that's the element. I can't move forward, okay, but it also means this pain of this thing. Every time I put my foot down, I, I'm feeling it. I'm unable to get out of the shoe. Um, I've described it as a claustrophobic. You're in a crowded room. You're, you're pressed against each other. Okay, it's Macy's on Black Friday, you know. <laughs> yeah. You're hemmed in would be another good word. Um, but that's a panic I can't get out. That, that is um, really, really what we're talking about. And then he says that the, the things have risen up. And that really means exactly what it says, but just to pull it out, it means that it's risen up in front of you and it's immovable, and I can't get around it. So there it is, the impossible in my life. There it sticks in front of me, and I I can't get around. It's risen up against me. It's an obstacle that's too strong for me. Can't, Can't get around it. And the context, as I said a few minutes ago, is of an accuser. It's a court appointed adversary. And it is saying of my soul, it's talking about my very being, that God has forsaken me there. And the fear of that um, with David, it came to the fear of the future. In fact, further down in verse 6, when he's got the answer to this, he says, I will not be afraid of temp, which suggests he was before. And, and so the, the fear of an unknown future, the distresses uh, have, have within the fear, I not only can't get out of this, but I can't avoid where we're going. And, and so he's accepting the accusation. He's accepting it. This is the way it is. Now, I want to take time on that. Um, do you ever... Do you know? Do you know why you you have emotional bouts? Um, ever studied it? Do, do you know how long um, an emotion lasts? Just you get angry, 
or even joy, but um, we're talking negatives here. You you get any, I'll say anger. Do you know how long actually that lasts? I mean, if, if you just take a picture of, of your emotion, it lasts for about 50 seconds and and it would die after that. It's got nothing unless, ha, 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 unless you keep putting wood on the fire and you do that in terms of a story that you tell yourself. What is it that caused the anger? Well, now let me tell you the story. I'll tell you what caused this anger. She said this and she did that and he did that. Can you believe that? And the story fuels the anger. It keeps going now. It keeps going. And the longer you tell the story to yourself and to others, so the anger continues. That's the life of the emotion. And that can be applied to any emotion. Uh, you see, our thoughts are not like little white clouds that scud across the sky. Uh, we would tend to think of our thoughts in that way. That they, I mean, thoughts just pass through my head. And we don't believe they have any attachment. They're just passing through my head. But again, speaking scientifically every thought you think ha has substance it's a thing it uh, takes up space in your being and uh, it not only takes up space it actually is deposited in various parts of your body uh, I mean it can actually be registered if you can picture it as, as it's happening. You can actually see it on a screen. It's, it's a thing. It's, that that right there is um, really saying it's a substance. Someone said it's real estate. Uh, yeah, I mean, you thought something. Well, it 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 actually took up a physical place in your being, and at the same time becomes an energy source of whatever that thought is about, it becomes energy that affects every cell of your body at the speed of light. You think something and every cell in your body is immediately part of that think. So if someone says to you some tragic news, in one instant you will have a physical response to that. You might even develop ulcers in that very minute, which is a reality. Um, people have had a heart attack just by hearing a sentence because a thought is not only substance, but it is a source of energy that goes to every cell in your body. And you've got 75 trillion cells in your body. They've all got your name on them. And when you think a thought, everyone is immediately engulfed in that thought. I was going to say, think about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so our life, the life that we live, our everyday life, the way that we think, if we're always sad, always see the negative side, that is a public record of the way we think.
The way we think produces that in our bodies that has a mystical way of making that's the way we do our work, that's the way we approach life. And so we become a person who's always the victim, we're always... And it, that is a public record of the way we think. We have produced it. And now it's on show. And so we we tell ourselves, we tell ourselves, we tell ourselves. And of course, all this happens so quickly. Have you noticed how quickly you can tell a whole life story just in a split second in your head? It's, it's amazing. Uh, I say again, at the speed of light, we tell the story. And if you noticed how you tell the story, you finish it, and then you start all over again, as if I've got to get this right. And if, if you're telling the story to somebody else, if you notice those people, they've just told you the story, and then they start telling you again. Uh, you just told me what he said. You just told me that. And you told me how mad you were. Why do you have to tell me a second, third time? It, it's, 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 that, that's the way it works. The story, the story. And we, we go to bed with it. We dream of it. We can't sleep at night. Get pain in the neck, really. Uh, it's our story. So we got it. We got it. It's our story. Trouble is, it's really true. Really. There's always a bit of truth to it. I mean, I guess the guy did say that, and you were hurt, but you don't really know much about him to know why he said it. You, you don't. There's a lot here you don't know anything about, but you've you've accepted it as the ultimate, final truth. This is what happened in that moment, and it, it's all depending on how it affected me. But as I say, it's a lot of half-truths. Then we, have you noticed over about a week or two, we exaggerate and it becomes much worse. It sounds more like World War III now than actually what happened. But that's what we do. And, and we believe it. This is, it becomes truth to us, which opens a door for further lies from the liar that is only too quick to join us in the story. Um... And the story gains control. It really did the moment we began to repeat it. But it now takes control of our life. I liken it to a hurricane coming across the Gulf. You really have to live in Texas or Louisiana or Alabama to know what I'm talking about there. But the, these hurricanes come across the Atlantic. And when they hit the Gulf of Mexico which is just down the road from where we're sitting, um, the heat uh, of the Gulf causes them to become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And they can massive overnight. And well, whenever I read that or hear about it happening, I think of what I'm talking about now, that what just was a little tropical depression in your head has now become a Cat 5 hurricane. Uh, because it, it gains as, as you talk, as you talk, as you talk. And you'll always have willing listeners. They love to hear gossip, and so that you can have an audience. And, and of course, that really, they're not going to go there now, but the, that, that's how sin began. Satan came to the couple in the Garden of Eden and told a story. There's a story about, you know, how you poor victimized people, that you could be more than you are, um, but now just follow my instructions, and there's a story. 
it's for good reason he is called the prince of the power of the air he is the transmitter of lies which we pick up and that often is the case nothing happened except we pick up something and start talking about it as if it's truth okay and of course all um commercials on tv are part of this whole network of but anyway do you remember james chapter 3 verse 2 he's talking about our talk our conversation and he says that if you control your tongue the way you talk and of course that begins in your head all conversation begins in thought form he said if you're able to do it he says you're then able to bridle or bring under control the whole body that's what i just said you've got 75 trillion cells that make up your body it's what you think and what you say that controls it and so he goes on you put bits in a horse's mouth so they'll obey us he says it's not merely a matter of obedience that little tiny bit in their mouth directs their entire body it's the direction and he said that's the tongue and he says look at the ships they're they're carried through storms by a little tiny rudder he says they're directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires he controls it through that little rudder he said that's your tongue whatever's smashing against your life you walk through it with your tongue that that's that's the medium uh, of strength uh doesn't matter what is facing you your tongue it, it controls your body which, which includes my health it includes my mentality my outlook certainly includes my spirit or again he says how we could look at california a great forest is set aflame by such a little spark and he says that's the tongue you can you can set things on fire for good or for evil with your tongue it's a very world of iniquity and um trouble is our story that we tell it could be 40 years old and by which time you have forgotten every detail you're left with what you believe really happened and that's why you look the way you do at 40 years because it's, it's been cursing your body it's been dragging you down it's been you know i'll, I'll leave it you you get what i'm saying um we have guided our entire life by that rudder of what we talk about and believe and say is final truth that's it um every time we tell it to ourselves or to others we relive the event that's daft you know i mean the scab was healing and then we can't tear off the scab let's do it again let's feel let's feel the blood run down our arm one more time come on Let, let's feel the pain that's what it is when you tell it again the story and now let me go back to the beginning it would have died in 50 seconds without you keep telling this story that's what keeps it alive so anger 40 year old anger because she just kept kept telling the bitterness that then develops with that and feeling the hurt all over again 40 years later believe me i've been a pastor long enough to know these this happens this happens uh, shame what what the people people live with, with visible shame and when you find out what happened it was a lifetime ago and yet they've kept telling themselves the no good that they are 
And of course, the worst stories of all are those we tell about the future because they haven't even happened. Then we become authors of fiction stories. And have you noticed, we want to prove that our story is true. So in order to prove it's true, everything that happens in our life, we relate it to the story. And we say, see, I told you. That, um, that's it. Why have I taken all that time to say that? Because that's what David was doing. He's telling a story. Did, I, do, do you see how he was doing that? He's telling the story to God. How my adversaries have increased. Have you noticed, Lord? You know, Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, no hope for him in God. The story. He, it's his report. He's going over it. This is what they're saying. This is what they're saying. It's a lament. It's a long complaint pouring out his pain and his misery hopelessness as he sees it and is heard, heard, heard it and it's a terrible story i mean david do you realize what you're saying here because it's a story of god's faithlessness there's no hope for him no salvation for him what do you mean david why even bring that up that's a terrible thing you say that god has abandoned you he's broken his covenant he's left you to die he told Shimei to stone him. Come on, David. What kind of story are you telling? What kind of story is anybody telling when you begin to put it on paper and analyze it? But there's something good. He's telling it to the Lord. I think it was the first time he had. I think up until now he's been telling it to himself and listening to others. And But now... He's saying, oh Lord. Now that changes everything. And what I like about David all the way through his life, he doesn't pretend to be a spiritual giant. He, I mean, yes, I know. It's a, terrible words. Terrible words. I stand back and say, David, is this really you? But in another sense, I'm so glad he did that. Because, you see, religion has taught us dishonesty. Religion has said, if you show any sign of being miserable, then there's lack of faith. And, and um, so we've got our way of meeting other believers. We put on a rigid mask of happiness. And we're, we're falling apart inside, but we didn't tell anybody because they will think then we've lost our salvation or something. Um, because religion is all phony, it's all out here, it's all fake. And, and <clears throat> But this, this is the real McCoy. He's not pretending to be a spiritual giant, and he's not ashamed of telling the Lord, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm seeing. Thank you, David. Thank you. He's telling the story that is fueling his fear, but he's telling it to the Lord, which includes the Lord into it now. He's included the Lord into his conversation. Now that is what has made it different. Oh yes, he's still telling us that he's afraid, that he's frail, that he feels shattered, he feels lonely, forsaken. He tells us he's falling apart. 
He's facing a future of loss. He's lost everything. He's lost everything that he, he's left with sackcloth and ashes. His palace, his wealth is, is all left behind. And he's lost his son. He's lost his family. Yeah. Possibility of death. But it's no longer going over and over to himself. He's now opened it up and said, this is how I'm feeling. And that is so important. And I've said this too many times to repeat it in detail here. But on the road to Emmaus, that's the classic one. When Jesus comes alongside and he says, you look sad. You know, if, if I was the risen Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, I think I'd approached him differently, saying, okay, guys, relax, it's me, you know. Instead, he won't start there. They've got to tell him. They've got to open up their story and let him inside their story. Then he can talk to them. And so he says, well, what's the matter? And they says, are you the only one in Jerusalem? You know. And he says, what things? And he, he brings them to pour out their hopelessness, their despair, what looked like the end of their life, coexistent with the crucifixion. And then he says, boy, you are thick-headed guys. And he begins, and then he says, did not our hearts burn within us? But it started right here where David is, the honesty the, what to most people will be terrifying honesty to stand before him and, and say, I'm not the spiritual giant. And then it says, Selah. You've noticed that in the Psalms, that little word, Selah. It's a great word. It means, ah, okay, I said it. Now, let's think about what I just said. Pause. Pause in the presence of God. Stop. Listen to what he's saying. Think about this in his presence. Or you could say it means to regather, refocus, recalibrate your heart to God's heart. I suppose you could say it means get new lens for your glasses. See things straight. Selah. Stop. I have just said this. Maybe that's the first time he really heard it. Because when you're telling it to yourself, you're so immersed in it, you don't really, it's just... But now you've opened it up and you've dared to tell him where you're at without any apology and without any kind of spiritual foo-foo that's going to make it look better. You just, here I am. And that's the only person God can deal with because he only deals with truth. And all that other religious nonsense only separates your mind from his. And Selah means, what have I just said? And let's, let's refocus. What are you saying about what I've just said? See, David's in an awkward situation here, and I think it's worth at least mentioning because I think there's many persons who might have this same problem. David was consequencing. You know what I mean by that? Yes, he was forgiven of David and Bathsheba's sordid affair. Incredible. 
and forgiven to the point he was walking on the ceiling and blessed is the man who, you know. But he did it. I mean, in history, it happened. And it happened at the center, right? The king of Israel. You throw a stone in the water, you can be forgiven if it wasn't supposed to be done. Uh, But I'm sorry, the stone still went in the water. And there's ripples now going all the way to the shore. And what the people were saying on the streets, they've got their own problems, but he did it. He did it. Sorry, David. I mean, but your consequence, this is the consequence. And yeah, you... You have messed up your family big time. You do not get a father's award. (laughs) Um, You're the poster child for a a father that screwed it up. Now, Absalom is doing what he's doing. He's got his real problems. Absalom's got problems. But you kind of are part of those problems. And I want to emphasize it that he is consequencing consequencing um there's a consequence to every action we take there's a consequence to every word we say and so many people think well that's it i deserve this no 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 hold it david consequenced and this was the consequence of a screwed up underbelly if you like it's not the david we know about too much but this is the consequence well what do you think God who is love does about that you really think he sits back and says okay guy you made your bed now sleep in it he might say you made your bed but now he says let us sleep in it if you are consequencing then let me tell you he is consequencing with you that's the amazing thing the, the evangelicals love that word backslide. It turns up every Sunday, sooner or later. Um, well, if you backslide, not that the word is mentioned in the New Testament, by the way. It's totally an Old Testament word. But, okay, if you like the word, you can have it. Um, if you backslide, he backslides with you. That's shocking, isn't it? That's love. I mean, go back to the one we always go back to, the sheep. When the sheep went into the wilderness, it backslid. He was having a jolly good time in the flock, and then the stupid idiot went into the wilderness. It backslid into the... And the wilderness was the consequence of its stupidity of following every stray piece of grass until it lost them. So what does a shepherd do? He consequences with the sheep, stands in the same place as the sheep, same dangers, same everything. He's right there as lost as the sheep, except he's not lost. He knows where he is. If you, I I, I don't think anybody listening has had an affair in which you ended up murdering the husband of the lady. Um, But should you be here listening, that you'll pay consequences. They'll be, but he joins you and makes your shame his shame, makes your position his position, and walks out of it with you. That that's a, that deserves an hour. But I and what David did, 
at this point is recognize that. I have to believe that's part of why he was in such desperate straits because he, he, I, I brought this on myself. But at that moment he realizes as Selah, he pauses, he, he brings everything into, uh, into the line with, with the heart of God and he realizes he's with me in this. And, and sometimes there's that, but David said in other places, my heart is fixed. And if I take out the picture we just looked at, that our words are the rudder of our ship. Well, in old times, when they had sailing ships, and you had the big wheels that connected with the rudder, I don't know if you know this, but in a storm, the steersman would tie himself to the wheel with ropes, so that as the rudder wants to go every which way, he's tied to the wheel and it can't it's got to go where he says it's going yeah and what does david do here he is tying himself or recognizing actually recognizing he is tied to what god says and not what the people are saying he's tied to what god says not what he said about himself and in this moment, as his rudder is about to go all over the place, he realizes he's tied to his wheel in God. Um, and God's voice mocks the voice of all the people, dismisses them. And at that point, David changed his story. Now this it could be the most important thing that I'm going to say. Because um, it, it's it's different. He changed the story to see everything that was happening from God's point of view, which is the only truth. And he says, "But that's the great word. That is, I'm not denying that the people are saying this, but it no longer means anything, because there's a greater story that cancels the lesser story." But you, oh, I am. That's what they're saying. But now I am choosing. But you, but you contradicts and changes the entire story. And let me tell everybody listening to this that those words, but you, contradicts and changes every story in your head which amazingly will change the message to 75 trillion cells which will change the real estate of thoughts in your life which will change the shape of your body which will change the shape of your shape physical shape of your face and cause you to move into a realm of Holy Spirit reality. Just those two words, but thou. But now, what does that mean? Hmm. Well, of course, it means that I no longer camp at the story. It's no longer my story that I just can't wait to tell you. That's over. I don't fret over it. 
which means there's a lot of questions that I no longer ask because the way he was telling the story he would be saying why didn't I see this coming are you stupid David why didn't you see this coming and then if only I had been a better father that really is at the heart of it and I'm the king I failed I'm the pastor of this people and I failed you can, the, those three questions could take a lifetime of going over and over and over and over. I've met pastors that have said it for 50 years now because of a mistake they made 50 years before. The moment you say, but thou, it's the end of that. I'm, I'm, it's the end of this camp. I'm, I'm not around this campfire anymore, which means we no longer ask those questions. But thou. Nor, and this is very interesting, and stay here a long time. He doesn't question God. He doesn't say, why did you let this happen? He didn't even say, have you abandoned me? Doesn't bring that up. That's interesting. Whereas what I say to everybody, never, ever, ever ask God why. Because there's no answer to that. The answer's inside the heart of God. And the question rather is, what are you being to me right now? Not why. Nor does he argue and debate the accuser. He doesn't say to himself uh, as if, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that. You know, you shouldn't be as hard on me as that. Uh, doesn't, there's no, no mention of that at all. Nor does he rebuke the devil. He doesn't... <laughs> Some people think that's the answer to rebuke the devil. David doesn't even bring it up. Doesn't even turn inside to say, okay, I promise myself I will not say negative things again. Doesn't say that. You can't tame your speech. It's um, nor, nor does he promise that if God gets him out of this, he'll do this and that and the other. I hope you're taking note of this because these are the ways people come right up to this and then miss it because of all these silly things they do. But maybe the most important thing is he doesn't pray. Good grief. He doesn't pray and ask God to intervene. He doesn't pray and ask that God will come and do something or even become something. That's amazing. He just simply makes a declaration, a bold one. And notice, I think you've got it now anyway, but, but thou, and I've said before, thou is Old English and doesn't appear in our modern translations, but it's the most intimate. You is the plural of thou. If you've ever had lessons in English, they would have taught you that in England anyway, that... Um, the conjugate the verb I am thou art and then the plural is you are well we, we dumped thou it's gone now and so there's no word for intimacy it's all y'all you know it's use <laughs> but um thou thou 
David was speaking most intimately. You in the most intimate, intimate way. That is, he hadn't found a doctrine that got him out of this. <coughs> he hadn't found a formula. It was a vow. Intimate. The I am, the living person, the unchanging, the faithful, the true, the all-sufficient. I am. And that I am himself is the shield, the glory, the lifting of his head. That's so important. Because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, right now I'm addressing a um, hundred things that I've heard people say, thinking they're getting themselves out of the dilemma. No. It's not that you've found a doctrine, a formula. It's you've woken up to realize and remember your relationship, this intimate relationship. Um, and you are, you think of it, you are my shield. Well, if you are my shield, then it means you do not give me a shield. Do you understand? It doesn't say you give me the shield. That'd be neat. But the moment if if I say that I give to Marshall my New Testament, well, it leaves me and becomes his, which means the whole thing is a separation now. Whereas if I would say I am your New Testament, it means you'll never again turn to the New Testament without me because I am it. See, So he doesn't give you a shield. He is. He doesn't give you something called glory. He is. He doesn't give you some formula that makes you happy and lifts your head. He is it. That, that's what it's saying. He is it. He's, he doesn't give things. He, there's no such thing as a love that God gives you. He is the love. He doesn't give you joy. He is the joy. Because that's union. That, that's what we're called to. This is the life. We're so one with him that he is the gift as well as the giver. Um, I could say this is the essence of worship. Worship is primarily 24-7. It's not something we do in church gatherings. Um, it's the way we talk. We're back there again. It's the way you think is worship. Worship is acknowledging the centrality, the allness, the I amness of God. And it is saying that we love him, we adore him, we trust him. Well, you, you do that with words, with thoughts. Then when we come together, by the inspiration of the Spirit, we might move into song, because song elevates language into another dimension. Um, but if you haven't been talking it and thinking it all week... It's phony idiocy to come and sing it on Sundays. Uh, worship is a lifestyle. It's one, and that's what David is doing. And he says, you are a shield about me. You know the amazing thing about this? That he's just got through saying there's no hope for him in God. And the next heartbeat, he says, you are a shield about Shouldn't there be some due repentance in here? Some, I mean, couldn't he be miserable a bit in the middle and say, I screwed up? Or, 
No, that was invented by religion. Um, if you get anything out of this, from the deepest depths of darkness, he went straight into the heart of God and says, you are my. There is no waiting period. There's no... I, I don't care. I mean, I'm looking at all your faces on the screen. I'm looking at the people here. Um, I, I have no idea where you're at. Honestly, I, I don't. I don't know what goes on in the deepest depths. But if you find yourself in the middle of depression and darkness and there's no way out from that feeling, from that middle of that situation, go directly without a breath to you are my because there is no in-between. The in-between may be getting used to it, but in fact there is no in-between. You are a shield about me. And notice, about me. Shields are not about. They are in front of you. That's what shields are. You hold it in front. He says you're a shield about me, round about me, meaning you shield me at the back and the sides and the front. You shield me. And what is a shield? A shield absorbs what's being hurled at you. It, it, it depends on the method of warfare. But in David's day, a shield absorbed the arrows. So they didn't get to David, they went into the shield. And what he's saying here, that you are the shield, you're the one, all this that they're saying about me, all the poison arrows that they're hurling at me, you absorb it, and it becomes yours, and you dismiss it. I don't have to deal with it. But I, I love the next one. He says, you are my glory. Now, I mean, I can understand each one of these, but Every, I mean, David was king, and all the glory of being a king, he has just left it behind in the palace. Huh, indeed, Selah, think about that. I mean, are we talking money? Well, we know from various other parts, David had lots of money. Well, it's all in the palace. He's lost it. Absalom will come and use it. And his royal attire, which is the human way of displaying glory, which with the crown and the ermine capes and everything else, and all the way through human society, we all have certain things that show our glory, the stripes on a soldier's uniform, the, you know what I'm talking about, the glory. That was all. But it, it reflected who he was. It was, hear me carefully, the glory of anyone is the opinion that someone else has of them that has now been woven into cloth or beaten into golden crowns and silver and whatever. Does that make sense? Glory, in terms of any human glory, we understand it as being the opinion of someone else. That's why someone has to give that stuff to you. You are coronated 
when a crown is put on your head and the cape around your shoulders and the um, orb in your hand and so on it is given to you and when a there's a in in the armed forces you go and you receive your medals and honors and things around your neck and someone gives it to you because it's the opinion of someone about you that's your glory and a king especially that it's the opinion of the nation he's the pastor of the people and it's in their opinion yeah he sure has lost it the opinion of the people is you're finished man you're done there's nothing left to the old man you're like a junkyard dog let's throw stones at him and get him out of here yeah and he says you are my glory that is i am now clothed in your opinion of me i now wear the crown of your opinion i can spend a lot of time here you know i'm i'm wrapped in your opinion of me that is my honor that's my majesty and i don't care if they've taken everything else away taken away my medals and they've taken away my crown and they're using my money but at my heart of hearts nothing has changed your opinion of me is what now i'm left with no it's what i started with you're my glory i am radiant with your presence and remember when he said that he was still wearing sackcloth so this is radiance in sackcloth you know and he says, you're the lifter of my head. Which, I mean, when I'm depressed, well, again, of course, 75 trillion cells, you're depressed up here in your head, so what happens? Your body goes down. And you, you show it. You, you hang your shoulders, you stare at the ground, you can't look people in the eye. All our invisible emotions have a physical expression. And so the down of the head the shame i'm no good because um in religion that's counted as holiness uh, the more you can tell everybody especially god that you're worthless and you can't lift your head then the more holy you are but of course that is one of those damnable lies that we were raised with because he says, you, O Lord, you lift my head up under my chin. You lift my head up. You put my shoulders back. But if he lifts my head, where do I find myself looking? In the eyes of the person who's lifting my head. One of the underlying um, structures of the whole Bible is righteousness. And righteousness has nothing to do with behavior. Righteousness doesn't mean you've piled up a list of things that are good that you've done. Righteousness is a very ancient word, especially in English, but in most languages, it's um, a word that means a right relationship. It means face to face. So when it spoke of jesus as god the son in the beginning was the word the word was god 
And then it says in our Bibles, the word was with God. But the Greek there is pros, P-R-O-S, which means face to face. And, and so the Holy Trinity is described to us as dwelling in face to face in this perfect relationship, which the English word is righteousness, which means it's balanced. Another way of looking at righteousness is the scales that balance. Um, I, I don't want to pursue that, but that, that that's face to face. So when he says he lifts my head, it means he's bringing me at least into the realization of righteousness, which of course is the last thing that these people are talking. They've said there's no salvation for him in God. Well, he says he brings me face to face. He brings about a perfect balance that when God looks at me, he looks at himself and his righteousness face to face. Or the word that goes with that, of course, is union. We're union with him. All that he is, we are. For me to live is Christ. And that's, we were created for that posture. And in Christ it's been realized. And, and David anticipated that. And he says, you, you did, you, you did this. You are a shield around me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head, the restorer of my righteousness. The liar always pushes us down. And Jesus always... We, we've talked about this before. Andrew's talked about it too. Um, I think you did once too. <laughs> um, that, in fact, you were... It doesn't matter. That, uh, that when, when um, John saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And... and Jesus lifted him up, but in order to lift him up, Jesus had to come down and lift him up. See, religion says, good, that's where you belong. Grovel, stay there. Tell me you're unworthy. The God of religion loves it when you spit on yourself. But Jesus comes down right where we are and lifts us up face to face. Um, that's what he does. We could multiply those ideas. Um, David said that, that's it. He changed his story. So every time he hears what they're saying, and any time it rises by habit inside of him, he counters it. You are my, you are my, you are my. That's interesting. He doesn't deal with the story they told. He doesn't deal with his own story. He ignores it and replaces it. Never go and try and change your thinking. Replace your thinking with God's thinking. Yeah. So then he... Um, sums it up now um, he said I was crying to the Lord with my voice that is when he began to tell the Lord his old story and he says and he answered me from his holy mountain think about that Selah yeah he had told him and what was the answer the answer was the realization bursting on David you are my and then he says, I lay down and slept. Good grief, man. Absalom's marching on the city. You got out by the skin of your teeth and you're only a very short distance from the city. It's time to run for your life, he says. I'm taking a rest. In, in the 
Young's literal translation, the I there is emphatic. We can't do it in English unless we just say it emphatically. But in, in the Hebrew, and so in Young's literal translation, it says, I, I, the two eyes, he said, I, I lay down. Meaning, yes, you got it right. The man who just said that, I, I'm the one, I laid down. That battered man is now in such perfect peace, such rest, that there's no need, nothing else to be added to it. I, I, I go and rest. And then he says, he awoke and was sustained, felt like a million dollars. Now he shouts, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me. Before, he says, many are those who said, you know, oh, there's so many, they've risen up against me. There's no way past them. Now, he says, my, my, you are my, you are my, you are my. Therefore, I will not be afraid. 10,000 people who have stood in my pathway and rise up against me. So a thousand voices tell their story of doom. He's got one voice, but it's one voice that is absolutely one union with the voice of God. And therefore his one voice drowns out a thousand voices. No wonder, because in Revelation it says that the voice of the Lord is the voice of many waters. <laughs> yeah, that kind of drowns everything out, and that is his voice. And so I say it again, he ignored. Please, I've tried to say um, things that he didn't do because they're all the things we usually do do. And um, one is we don't ignore, we, we try to fix it. We say, I won't do that again. And we keep going back there. No, David totally ignored it and simply replaced a new story without reference in the old story. He ignored and he replaced and he had a story that was instead of the other story. And then he looks at the future, and it's interesting. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Now listen. Remember that where he is on the top of the Mount of Olives, looking over Jerusalem, just now with the telegram in his hand that says Absalom is marching on him, right? We couldn't be closer to the beginning of this story. He says, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation, that word that they said is not for Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to you guys. Your blessing be upon your people. So before this thing has really started, he's saying you have finished it. Do you remember we talked about it before, how Jesus addressed much of life by saying, the hour is coming, but it now is. Yeah, this has got to unfold. A lot would happen with this story it's, it takes up two or three chapters but, and two or three psalms too 
So this is right at the beginning. But David is saying, it, it, this is the way it, it is. This is where it finishes. And it, even so, it now is. It's already a reality in my heart. And notice where he says, you've smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You've shattered the teeth of the wicked. That was a Hebrew expression to describe talking. Because if... If you're talking to me and I punch you in the mouth, that makes talking difficult. And, and But then if I break all your teeth, well, you're done. And uh, that's the Hebrew idiom that is here. And so the Passion Translation has that, um, what is it? You have, you have broken or breaking the power of their words to hurt me. And he captures what that means there. So there it is. There it is. And I, I, I've said a lot. And I hope you've picked up the bits and pieces of it. Just in, you know, in what I've said, um, if, if, we, if we face loss, and most of us in some area we face loss, some, nothing as dramatic as this, but does it need to be dramatic to create a story that will last forever? Um, overwhelmed, that's probably a word that we can relate to better. Uh, become aware of storytelling. Really, really, really. Become aware of it, because we're not aware of it. We are not aware that we are telling ourselves a story that we believe is the absolute truth. And usually, if not always, it's a story that we've forgotten to open up to God. Which means we're telling a story that is purely, it's just us in this story. We've exited, God's not in our remembrance. He's there, of course, but we're not acknowledging him. That, that's, that's big. Be aware of how you're guiding your emotions. Your mental, physical health, you know, let alone the spirit that's going on. And remember to go straight with boldness to your true self in union with Christ. That's probably the hardest thing for the religious. Because with the religious, all that, you know what you have to do? Raise your hand, come forward, stand there like an idiot, say this prayer after me, try to do the best, come to... No. Straight out from the deepest depths, straight into, you are mine. And then rest. And don't feel illegal when you rest. Rest. And let there be lots of silas in your life. Lots of silas. When it begins, stop. Did you hear what you just said? Is that really the truth? All the way through to shout. But thou. Okay, I've landed my plane. <laughs> and so, now the blessing of God to his almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, his enlightenment overshadow 
every ear that listens and every heart that takes it in that we shall rise in but thou and become the people we truly are in Christ. So I bless you. And so it is. Amen.